Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. Hey all, the following is part two of a two-part series. If you're only just joining it here, I do recommend going back and listening to part one first. We'll wait. If you have already listened to part one, let's jump into it. This week, let me begin with a personal digression. For a little over a decade, I rented a place my friends and I referred to as the Beach House. In a few ways, it is what you would imagine, a ramshackle old house in a neighbourhood with the word Bay in the title. Sure enough, you got sea breezes, and could smell the salt in the air out in the courtyard. That sea air was potent enough, by the way, that it rusted ordinary padlocks and nothing flat. Occasionally a passing seagull would drop a present on the roof of your car. Occasionally, on a very quiet night, you'd almost swear you could hear the waves lapping at the shore. But the naming of the property was just some pompous, facetious, hyacinth bouquet level nonsense. The worst house on a posh street we were a long way from the beach. The house was on a stretch of road where our side slumped into a wooded hovel. We were hemmed in by trees, never enough sunlight, certainly no view of the sea. The other side of the road, however, was occupied by business owners and executives. Their houses stood proud and tall on a hill. Stunning properties with the stunning sea view one expects of a real beach house. So why do I mention this? I mention this as Alison's grandmother, Old Demdike, lived in a property with the suitably witchy name Malkin Tower. A cursory Google of the name brings up a beat-up old tower atop a hilltop. Brooding, solitary and windswept, it looks precisely the kind of place a coven of witches might engage in malicious activity around a steaming cauldron. This, however, is a dead end. What you're looking at is a Victorian folly called Black O Tower, built in Pendle Hill in 1890 by a mill owner who, not unlike my former neighbours, wanted a million dollar view of the valley. When I tell you Alison's interview with Justice Noel went horrifically badly, on 10th of April 1612, friends and family gathered at Malkin Tower to plan their next move. They met at an ordinary 17th century cottage. And that is precisely what happened. We left off last week with Alison Davis being interviewed by the Justice of the Peace for bewitching a peddler named John Law. Alison broke down immediately. As soon as Alison confessed to selling her soul to the devil and to hexing John Law, she'd unwittingly confessed to being part of a criminal organisation. Witches always belong to covens, after all. Justice Noel wanted to know who else belonged to the coven. After further questioning, Alison claimed her grandmother would once used witchcraft to kill a neighbour's cow. When Noel turned his attention to Alison's mother Elizabeth, she held up to interrogation far longer, but eventually broke, admitting she'd seen a witch's teat, an odd lump from which a witch's familiar, or even the devil, may suck a witch's blood, on the grandmother, old Demdike. Alison's brother James, who was thought of as simple using the language of the time, further dug Alison's grave, claiming she'd confessed to bewitching a child to him once. Knowing they were in trouble, the women then attempted to divert attention from themselves towards the Chattox family, another clan of wise women in the village. 
The Chattuxes were, similarly, a matriarchy run by an aging grandmother. They were also believed to have supernatural powers. The Chattuck's family matriarch was one Anne Whittle, also known as Old Chattuck's. She had two daughters, Elizabeth and Anne Redfern. The two families had been at odds with one another for over a decade, after the Chattuckses broke into Malkin Tower in 1601 and stole clothes and oatmeal from the Demdikes. The Demdikes soon cornered Anne Redfern's husband, John, demanding a year's supply of oatmeal, or they would retaliate. John agreed to their terms and kept his word until he could no longer afford to pay them. Soon after, he was struck with an illness and died. On his deathbed, John accused the Demdikes of murder. Back to the interrogation. Alison shared a tale with Noel, of Anne Whittle, the matriarch. Anne had gotten into an argument with a Higham Village local named John Moore. Moore was telling people in the village Old Chattox had turned his ale sour. In retaliation, Old Chattox allegedly murdered Moore's young son, using something like a voodoo doll. She went further. Old Chattox had killed four men she knew of, including her own father. For now Alison was detained. Elizabeth and James Davis were released. Orders were sent to bring in Old Demdike and the Chattuxes. Once brought in, the two elders immediately confessed to selling their souls to the devil, and eventually the other charges that were laid against them. Old Demdike, Old Chattux and Anne Redfern were marched to the dungeon below the Assize Court and chained to a wall next to Alison. They'd remain there till the trial. The gathering at Malkin Tower on Good Friday, 1612, may have gone unnoticed, but for the fact of a stolen sheep. A large gathering required food, so James Devers stole, then butchered, a neighbor's sheep. Gossip soon spread about the theft and the meeting. And as gossip often does, it got exaggerated in the retelling. A strategy meeting soon became a black mass, full of demonic rituals and, of course, plans to seek vengeance against the justice of the peace. As soon as word got back to Justice Noel on 27th April, he arrested the remainder of the family, including nine-year-old Janet Devis, eight more people, Elizabeth Devis, James Devis, Alice Nutter, Catherine Hewitt, John and Jane Balcock, Alice Gray, and Janet Preston were all charged with witchcraft and multiple acts of murder. The trial date of 17th August 1612 was set at the Lancaster Assizes for all but Old Demduck, who became ill in prison and died, and Jenna Preston. Preston lived in York and faced charges of murdering a man named Thomas Lister four years earlier. She'd beaten an earlier accusation of murdering a child by witchcraft, so it was already very well known to the two judges, James Altham and Sir Edward Bromley. This time she was defending herself against a dying man's last words, and what counted as post-mortem evidence. On his deathbed, the nobleman, Lister, allegedly exclaimed, Jenna Preston lies heavy upon me. Preston's wife lays heavy upon me. Help me. Before he took his last breath, Preston was brought before his corpse. Lister's body, it was said, condemned her by bleeding for all to see. In 1612, a bleeding corpse was seen less as a sign the patient may still be alive, more a sign that they had crossed back to the land of the living to ensure their killer was punished. 
A bleeding corpse was thought a sign of guilt of the person brought before the body. As discussed back on Buried Alive, earlier episode, series 1, it is estimated hundreds of poor souls were buried alive every year in the UK alone. This malicious tale was uncovered in the wake of Janet's arrest, as the justices made local inquiries. In this case, there was evidence enough for Alpherman Bromley. Janet Preston was tried 27th July 1612 in York, found guilty, and hanged on the 29th. It has to be said, Alpherman Bromley were the last two judges the Pendlewitches wanted, presiding over the case, both for very different reasons. James Altham was a true believer in witchcraft, malleus maleficarum, demonology and all. He detested witches, believing the only good witch was a dead witch. Bromley, on the other hand, was far more level-headed, but hated being stuck in the north of England. No doubt he tired of the number of recusants, secret Catholics who refused to convert to Protestantism, regularly paraded before him in the courts. But it was the lifestyle of the North that bored him. Bromley wanted a promotion and a relocation down to London. Something shocking involving a coven of witches may well be the kind of thing needed to impress King James. These assizes were his ticket back to civilization. The Pendle Witches got Bromley. On 17th August, the Pendle Witches were brought before the court. For the most part, it went as you would expect. Old Chattox was accused of the murder of Robert Nutter. She pled not guilty, then sat there as her earlier confession was read back at her. A boarder at her house, James Robinson, was also called to confirm everyone believed her a witch. The verdict? Guilty. The developmentally challenged James had confessed to all kinds of things for the family, including two murders among his own crimes. His confession was also read out of court. Nine-year-old Janet Devis was called in to give evidence. She further damned her elder brother. Likewise, a guilty verdict was returned. Anne Redfern beat the charge of helping Old Chattox murder Robert Nutter. There was insufficient evidence. Unfortunately for her, she was also charged with the murder of Robert's brother, Christopher. And although no evidence of this murder was presented, several witnesses were called to confirm Anne was a witch. And this was enough for Bromley. Guilty, next. And next was Jane and John Bullcock. Guilty of murdering Janet Dean and of attending the Malkin Tower meeting. Again, they were damned by nine-year-old Janet Devers. Alice Nutter, the only defendant not to come from the peasant class, refused to make a statement beyond pleading not guilty. She was found guilty, as was Catherine Hewitt. Both Hewitt and Alice Gray were accused by James Devers of murdering a child named Anne Folds. Based on nothing more than the testimony of a developmentally challenged young man, Catherine was found guilty while Alice was let go on the exact same evidence. Alison was the only witch to face an accuser in court. When told to look on John Law, she broke down in tears and reiterated her guilty plea. Alison's mother, Elizabeth, brought a different level of drama to the proceedings. All along, she had maintained her innocence, and now her life was solely in the hands of her nine-year-old daughter, Janet. Whether Janet had been coached or as has been suggested, was an imaginative child who enjoyed all the positive attention the case was giving her. 
and whether she understood the implications of her testimony. Well, that's all up for debate, really. What was absolutely certain is her testimony was damning. Elizabeth was accused of the murder of two men, James and John Robinson. She was also accused of being an accomplice in the murder of Henry Mitton. As Jenna was brought forth, Elizabeth lost all composure. She yelled and screamed hysterically at the young child, warning her to stop and tell the truth immediately before she damned the whole lot of them. God's sake, child, think what you're doing before you kill the lot of us. Elizabeth was restrained and then removed, kicking and screaming from the courtroom. Jenna proceeded to tell her story. Mummy had been a witch for some three or four years. She had a spirit familiar who took the form of a brown dog. The familiar was named Ball. Mummy had magical powers and often spoke with Ball. Of course, Ball spoke back. What did Mummy and Ball discuss, you may ask? Mummy asked Ball's help many times to murder other villagers. Elizabeth Davis was also found guilty. The guilty were all executed, August 20th, 1612, by hanging. You may be pleased to know Sir Edward Bromley's hard work did not go unnoticed by the king. Though it didn't happen overnight, he did get his promotion and moved to London in 1616. Janet Davis, for whom I'm not sure how much she really deserved a comeuppance, particularly if she'd been coached by unscrupulous adults, well, she too got what was coming to her. In 1634, a 10-year-old boy named Edmund Robinson accused Janet of murdering a woman named Isabel Nutter. Again, the court took the testimony of a child as gospel, and Janet was found guilty. Unlike her family, she was never hanged for a crime, although she did spend the rest of her natural life behind bars. Now, as you well know, this was early days for witch trials in England. They would continue in England till 1716. The last woman executed for witchcraft was a Huntington woman named Mary Hicks and her nine-year-old daughter Elizabeth. At this point in time, very few Britons believed in witchcraft anymore. All laws regarding witchcraft were finally repealed in 1735. By the end of Britain's witch-hunting era, some 500 witches were executed in England and 4,000 in Scotland. Close to 90% of those executed were women. Several attempts have been made to pardon the Pendle Witches. Several governments have refused to overturn their convictions. And at time of writing this, a petition is live to be presented to Queen Elizabeth directly. At the time of recording this episode, a petition had gone live to demand the Scottish Parliament pardon all their executed witches. I for one believe it is well over time the victims of witch hunts were pardoned for such fanciful claims. Thanks for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written by me, Simone Whitlow. Produced and all music, yours truly. Visit the blog historyandimagination.com Links to social media and liner notes. We have a Facebook and a Twitter, even a Pinterest. We also have a Patreon if you wish to help support the show and keep it going. If you have enjoyed the show, please leave a positive review. We'll be back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.